there's a, a big conversation that society wants to have. I'm just like fucking vaccinations and microchips for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Science experiment. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers but questions. We should teach kids how to question. Welcome to Blabcoats, my name is Amit Siddiqui. This week on the podcast we have on the one and only Meow Ludo Disco Gamma Meow Meow. I promise you that's a real name. You might have seen him on the news when he uh, got that Opal car chip implanted into his hand and he was on the project, on 7 News, ABC News, everywhere essentially. Now as interesting as those two facts are, his name and that Opal card implant, they are perhaps the least interesting thing about Meow. Meow is quite an interesting character. He's strangely unique and has some really uh, well thought out ideas. Um, when we went to interview him, we intended to take about 45 minutes. But the conversation went really well and it was so interesting that both of us completely forgot about the time. And so the interview uh, ended up being an hour and 45 minutes. So we decided to split this conversation into halves um, and release release it as two parts. Uh, so this is part one and next week we'll have part two. Um, in this part we had a fascinating conversation about the democratization of science, how we started biofoundry, you know, what is biohacking and uh, we talked about science and politics and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, and in the second half we'll talk about, you know, AI and transhumanism and a bunch of other cool stuff. But just a heads up also, this is going to be an episode that contains coarse language, so uh, there's quite a few F-bombs dropped here and uh, a little bit of sexual reference. So if you're not down for that, if it's not part of your sensibilities, then, then I would uh, probably suggest that you don't listen to this one. But if, if you can tolerate it, mm, then go ahead, you're going to enjoy this one. Um, or you could just scream to mask out uh, every f-bomb that's that's dropped but don't do that in public because mm, people might look at you really weird you know you might be screaming quite a bit uh ah 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 people think you're weird so don't do that anyway this conversation was really fascinating and i really enjoyed it uh, i think you guys are gonna have, you know uh really enjoy this conversation because Meow might come off as a extreme dude on TV but when you talk to him he's actually a, a really cool dude so yeah here we go. You know when you have your birthday and then there's just like this massive these massive blocks of messages that yeah. are just like happy birthday happy birthday happy birthday it was because because I've had so much media recently. Yeah, it just went fucking off the it hook. So I got like two hundred birthday messages yesterday. Oh, shit. I was like, it was like stupid. Oh yeah, happy birthday! Thank you, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. my dad's sixtieth yesterday. Really, yeah. full on. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's probably a good way of starting the podcast. Happy birthday, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
you know that there's heaps of heaps of people using our space that you guys might want to interview. That's what we actually want. Well, we might yeah. want to talk about what we wanted to go through because yeah, yeah. we wanted yeah. to get to that uh, biofoundry maybe towards the end because there's a lot of things that I think lead into yeah. the biofoundry. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. I forgot to write it down, but I was telling him today um, we've got to ask you about how people mm. can rent this space because I saw like mm. people yeah. can rent it for 150 a month. Or well, they, they, they get access to it. They never get exclusive access and this yeah. kind of actually ties into our ethics about how we set up the space. Yeah. So, so we'll probably yeah, just yeah, that yeah. Could want. we? Because because a lot of people want exclusive access to the space. Yeah. Like they'll say, oh, I want it four thousand dollars a month, six thousand dollars a month, and it's like, no nah, man, it's a hack lab. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, you can come and use it just like everyone else. Just because just because you have more money doesn't mean you're more special. Yeah, yeah. No, that's like right. I have. I I don't. I couldn't rent this space for six thousand dollars a month, and you can get fucked if you think you're more special <laughs> than I am. Like, yeah. like um. Yeah. yeah, so we'll probably talk about that. Oh, man. Yeah, Because yeah. yeah. it was like you know, three years of fucking blood, sweat, and tears. Oh, yeah. Like, I can imagine. Like, it's, it, the, the, the hardest part is not getting equipment. Everyone thinks, oh, fuck, getting equipment will be so difficult. The second you say, I will accept broken lab equipment, you better have a three-ton truck because every fucking man and his dog will call you oh, to come and pick up their lab equipment because yeah, yeah. it's cheaper than chucking it in the, in the rubbish. Oh. So, like, like, some of this stuff, we've gone to pick up other equipment and we've just picked up other shit in the loading dock that's working. So I've gone to pick up a broken a broken incubator and there was a brand new one sitting there that we just grabbed. Oh, really? Brand new thermal cycler, like fucking just crazy. Like, like, like literally this has been used three times and we got given it because there was surplus. Oh, wow. We're getting, we got, we're getting given a minus 80 and we got another one a week before. So like the, the lab equipment isn't the problem. Right. Jumping, like in Australia, it's regulation that'll kill you. Like... Fuck, I have read so many fucking standards, legal documents, <laughs> laws, just to make sure that we're operating within the bounds. Right. And like, oh, as a consequence, I actually went down and, and gave a presentation at the conference for the Institutional Biosafety Committees of Australia to basically say, how do you as an individual navigate this? Because most universities have like a team of qualified people that manage it. Obviously they're managing a lot more people, mm-hmm. but the regulation's the same. Right. So they write one safety document that covers, you know, 2000 people. I write a safety document of the same quality that looks after 10 people. Right. So the effort for the return is much yeah. less. Yeah. Right. Right. So I still have to fucking, our lab every single thing in here has to meet certification it doesn't look like it but we meet certification yeah PC, PC1's not too bad but there's there's other stuff that we have to do in the next year which is going to cost us about 25 grand and, and do you think that's a, a, obviously that's a big barrier for people who want to start up a, a lab like it's this huge. I, I was watching a, a um, an interview I think it was through Bloomberg that they did on you and you took them out to the cave but they were talking yeah. about how these uh, biohack labs are showing up all over Australia yeah um, obviously th- that's a difficult thing to, to do definitely so I think are we interviewing now by the way we can we, this oh. is just going to be a conversation oh, that's alright as long as that's yeah. all, I was just making sure if, if it's not being recorded I'll it, like it's, it's back no so, it's, it's, rec- oh, yeah, it's yeah, recorded awesome. yeah. yeah so so um, so yeah when, when Ashley Vance came out that, that was really cool I got to speak to him about heaps of stuff um He's a really interesting dude. We talked lots about where we think it's going to go. And I like legitimately believe that this is a revolution as big as the computing revolution. So I, th- I, th- I honestly think biotech has as much to offer the world as programming um, and, and internet. You know, mm. um, Pretty much all the cures to all of our problems 
almost all of them. You look at the top 10 problems in the world, 80% of them can be solved with biotech. Right. You know, like, you know, you can solve them with computers as well. Things like poverty are actually a distribution problem, not a resource problem. Right. So you can solve that using things like machine learning, smarter smarter distribution channels and stuff like that. Yeah. But like, you can also just GMO crops to grow in the desert. So so, and things like uh, climate change, you can have a management solution that can fix this, but you can also have things, uh, we were jamming a little bit before about things like algae. Yeah you can have those that, that also solve this problem. Um, things like healthcare, that entire industry can have huge impact by things like big data research, mm-hmm. you know, smashing out all of this um, huge amounts of data that's being collected and getting computer science to go through it again and again. But ultimately that has to be turned into a drug. Yeah. And then that involves biotech. Yeah. So, so all these things have their roots in biotech and that's why I think that's happening. Just to j- jump back to what you're saying about biohack labs taking over. Mm-hmm. When I started this, which was like, when was it? it? Must be like 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. There was maybe less than less than ten biohack spaces in the entire world. Right. Literally in San Francisco alone, there's five spaces now. Wow. So this is not a flash in the pan. It's been going along for years. They take a lot of effort to set up these spaces, but when they do, they're starting to provide real value back to the community, and we're starting to see things like biotech exclusive accelerators like IndieBio that take emerging companies and then give them like quarter of a million US dollars. Wow. So, so these, these startup companies, these startup biotech companies are actually getting funding by bigger companies who see the value of what they're doing. That's right. So the, 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 you, need, you need accelerators to give or, or traction to give these businesses legitimacy. And the purpose of the biohack spaces isn't explicitly commercial. So if you're, if you're a retiree that loves orchids, you can just come in and use the laminar flow hood. And I think that's a really important thing to reiterate because there's a, there's a lot of maker spaces pop, popping up now where they expect you to make stuff. And I think that that's kind of like when you're with your girlfriend and you feel like you need to come and she's just like, come on, come on. <laughs> you can't do it under the pressure. Like, yeah. you, you, it's, it's nice to just relax, light some candles, pull out a soldering iron and build something and just see where it takes you. You can't have that, that overwhelming pressure. So I think that's, uh, and, and you shouldn't be expected to either. You know, um, we, we call ourselves a hacker space and not a maker space yeah. because maker spaces imply you're going to build something. Yeah. And we, we think there's as much value in pulling something apart as there is to build it yeah and i totally agree with you i mean when your girlfriend does want you to come it's way less enjoyable <laughs> that's you know? it that's it <laughs> yeah, so, you go like man just because you're done i still have another 15 minutes <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's ex- ex- it's exactly right and i think that that's like you know with a lot of this stuff um especially like academics and stuff they forget to have fun and that's what this is meant yeah. to be about right yeah. you know it's it's um and in, in these things as well you know a porn star is going to have a lot less fun than you know someone who's just um gone out for a drink and had run up the stairs with someone that they just met so i think this is an important thing as well is that it can um you've got to you've got to keep this stuff enjoyable because mm. you want people to be able to access it and you know everyone's like oh let's make science fun and it's not always fun sometimes it's really hard mm-hmm. it is always interesting though yeah. and i think that if you if, if you allow science to always be interesting mm-hmm. that's when you'll get people come to spaces like this yeah i totally agree i mean <clears throat> uh, there's a kid who came out with this uh nanotube technology that was a test for prostate cancer um and and he emailed like i think a thousand or a hundred or some ungodly amount of of scientists and only about one of them actually gave him the opportunity to come conduct research i could see that if i could see that in the future where you have these biohack labs available Mm. 
people like him who might have this ingenious idea mm-hmm. would have the opportunity and the resources to pursue their interest or, or, or their idea without meeting, meeting so much resistance. Exactly right. I think you've hit the nail on the head that the technological barrier to studying science, so the equipment that you have available, the um, sales channels of buying things like different chemicals, mm-hmm. like even just buying carbon nanotubes, it's going to be very difficult if mm-hmm. you're a 15-year-old. Right. Especially without a, without a company behind you. So you need you need spaces to do this. Otherwise, prototype is killed. Sorry. Um, otherwise, uh, the inventions are killed before they even hit prototype stage. So we consider ourselves realistically a prototyping lab. Mm-hmm. So you can take an idea here, bring it to proof of concept, and then if you want to, you can take that to an investor, you can kickstart it. But you, you need that space yeah. and you need it to be low cost. So we have no one turned away due to lack of funds. We do charge our members, but a lot of our members can't afford to access this space, so we don't charge them. Right. And that, that's hard when I, I'm not able to pay my rent. Right. But it doesn't matter because if it's not accessible to the poor, yeah. it's not radical nor revolutionary. There's a reason why people are interested in what we're doing is because it goes against a lot of the th- traditional rules of like business and the way that things should be done and instead does things the way that we think is, is the, the best ethical way of doing things. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, so it, it seems like a, this whole thing about the lab. Um, I, one question that came to my mind while I was, while we were doing some research is like, what sort of projects um, can people do? Is that unlimited? Can I come in here and run an idea that's you know uniquely mine, or do I have to go through you? Or, or? yeah, so you would at the very least we we would have to tick off your idea. Okay. So we don't mind if you tinker, but you have to sit down with us and talk a little bit about that. And the reason for this is that there's a lot of federal regulation in the space we work in. Right. So we have to make sure that it's legal both for you and for us. Yep. Because if you came into our lab and did the wrong thing, that might actually cause um, legal repercussions for me and right. for the building. I see. So, so Australia has some of the strictest gene control, uh, gene regulation right. laws. In, That's in something I was going to, yeah, I was, I was going to touch on. You know, working in a PC2 lab, yeah. um, they have strict guidelines on how you dispose of GMOs. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, so that would be like a question, like an, an issue that I thought would be uh, really important to consider when you're letting people come into the lab and conduct research. You have yeah. to be careful of what is going to be disposed of and how it's going to be disposed of. Definitely. So, so no. No genetically modified waste leaves biofoundry. Mm-hmm. Um, we've in, the bulk of our time has been spent writing and implementing processes that allow us to operate within the guidelines. So everything that leaves our lab is chemical waste. Okay. Um, we have done bio waste before. It's very expensive. Um, we've never had GMOs leave our lab. So we we collaborated with an artist um, who was doing some bio art. And uh, he asked us to disp- dispose of some bio waste. So it's the only time we've actually disposed of bio waste. Right now, there's 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 ways. After speaking with um, a lot of occupational health and safety officers and people at universities that do this, they told me some like oh, it's like tricks mm-hmm. to get around some of the the, the stuff. So um, chemical waste is a lot easier to deal with than bio waste. And there's ways you can turn bio waste into chemical waste by hitting it with ten times the amount of bleach, <laughs> and then that denatures it. So sorry. Yeah. Just, um, no, sorry. So so so. Um, there, there's, there's, there's ways that universities have done this and right. often um, a lot of these uh, people at the universities are, are really helpful in um, showing us ways they dealt with particularly difficult things. Mm-hmm. So one of the things is we have to have wash basins as a PC1 laboratory, but there's, there's an exemption that if it's impractical like it is in this room, um, you can put uh, antibacterial um, 
the hand soap, you know, the stuff they have at hospitals where you squirt it out and rub it on your hands. So there's there's these little kind of ways that you can modify it um, to get around it. Now, GMOs is is the big one, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's why we have PC1. Um, The legislation is really confusing. There's quite a lot of it. It's not that bad once you've spent a couple of years wrapping your head around it, but the way that it's made out is like, oh no, it's fine. It's really easy. All the information's out there. They'll have like a document, information about the document, then explanatory information <laughs> oh about God. that document. Oh so like, you know, as easy as it is, like there's three, there's all this supporting information to just read one document that right. should be easy to read in the first place. So it's, it's pretty tricky. Yeah. It, it's really fucking boring. Like you will sit there for hours. We will sometimes <laughs> we'll have 10 people in a Skype call and each person just picks something and we get rid of the legalese and bring it back to like common English so that it's actually readable by humans. Ah, that's cool. Um, Yeah. So, but, but with the GMO stuff, the bulk of our safety induction, the bulk of our rules for the lab gravitate around the heavy regulation of GMO. And we actually think it's a good thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's really cool. Let's go. uh, Let's talk about biohacking because I think it's a, it's an umbrella term that encompasses quite a few different things. Can you, can you give us a definition of what biohacking is? Um, yeah, I can. So, in in my opinion, it's not the opinion shared by everyone else. Uh, it, biohacking is a, a pretty broad umbrella term. What I think of as biohacking kind of has five pillars. Mm-hmm. So it's it's all being done in a outside of an academic institution or uh, a business g- generally. Like you could biohack out one of these uh, by ad- ad- adapting a hacker mindset, but we-, we won't go into that. So it-, it covers molecular biology, microbiology, equipment building bioinformatics and grinding so the act of putting technology under your skin hmm. and and where would you fall um i would cross all of those all of those so yeah okay oh uh, and um that's why i decided those are the five pillars yeah <laughs> so, so some some people well the, the, the reason we've created it is there's um there's a lot of people in the, the the what i would call the real biohacking community that are a bit upset that um this kind of nutrition hackers and more like body hackers are kind of grabbing onto biohacking as their own term and this is this is a really recent thing this has come out in the past year or two and people have actually been like we've been biohacking yeah since 20 2006 2007 and then these guys have seen this cool thing that they can basically jump on the bandwagon of right and there's very little scientific evidence for a lot of it and it kind of goes against a lot of what we're doing like in a sense if you were really heavily looking at the molecular biology and collecting good quality data it would be biohacking. The simple fact of the matter is it's not. Mm. It's used to sell supplements. It's used to um, extract money from people. And there might be some scientific evidence for it. But a lot of it is just completely not in the hack mindset the way we think of it. So nootropics, like um, brain-enhancing drugs, is another one. But like I think this is is breaking off into something else. So I think one of my friends, for example, who's an awesome thought leader in the biohack community, works with plants. And he's like, well, what about ecology? Is like ecology biohacking? And I said, no, no, I think the scale is the scale is different. Yeah. And that the outcomes are different. So yeah. a lot of biohacking actually has kind of close ties to manufacturing and commercialization. Things like ecology are actually kind of more sacred. Right. They're looking at things like terraforming and bigger scale stuff. And then nutrition and stuff is looking kind of it's more like dieting. And I guess dieting. Right 
kind of could be considered biohacking, right. but I think it's a personal hacking type right. thing. There's there's one I think a, a talk that I that I listened to by Amal, who is um, I, I believe he founded Grinders. Um, he was talking about how people are trying to supplement vitamin A two instead of A one in order to somehow be able to uh, see in the infrared spectrum. So is that what you mean by this? Yeah. So there's 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 some there's some different. So that's that's an interesting one, like. I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't know where I would on, on that. I, it's it's like a kind of a form of grinding, right? Right. But it's not technology. It's that that's a really tricky one. So you brought up a, a very interesting question. And my my thing is, I don't want biohacking to be associated with supplements. That's okay. that's the big thing, right? I see. Like I don't want to be part of that community because I don't believe it has the benefits they're claiming. I believe it has it, it, a, a lot of people in this space. Not all of them are out there to deceive people. And that has nothing to do with what we're doing in this lab. Mm. Like, I just want to steer the fuck away from that. Yeah. Um, so, like, gene therapy, for example, would be a crossover. Yep. I'm down for gene therapy. Yeah. Like, it works. It's proven. Yep. We know the biological causes, the biological outcomes. That stuff, I'm like completely down with. And that kind of goes more into the grinding thing. The the vitamin the vitamin supplement the vitamin two thing for example, vitamin A two for example. If they're studying it properly, I'd say it's kind of closer. I'm like a massive skeptic, but whether it will work or not. Yeah. But I guess it kind of is. It's like, I'm just, there's there's kind of this like the vegan kale hippie movement and bulletproof coffee, which kind of is this like, it's its own beast. But I don't think it should be uttered in the same breath as what we're doing. Right, right. And like, that's cool. If they, if they want to do it that way, they're, they're very successful. Yeah. Something that a lot of biohackers aren't. In, in the traditional sense, they're making tons of money, but I'm like, at what cost? And right. and, and and how well do they sleep at night? I see. If they genuinely genuinely believe it and there's evidence for it, well, awesome. But I haven't seen anything that's convincing for me. Right. Okay. How did you get involved? I mean, what? Yeah. What What was the 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 catalyst for you to get involved in 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 biohacking? Did you, as a young kid, say, you know what? As a seven year old, I think technology is awesome. Funny uh, you should say it, actually, because um. When I think I was about five or six, Jurassic Park came out, and I said I wanted. I said to my dad, "Who makes the dinosaurs?" And he's like, "Genetic engineers." And I was like, "I want to be a genetic engineer." Then I went through like twenty different fucking job ideas. I want to be an astronaut, cartoon character, all that. Um, this is in high school, <laughs> and then um, halfway through uni, I kind of defaulted into genetics. Um, I'd done a really broad first year another really broad first year where I basically took every like undergraduate science class you could do in first year physics chem psychology Mm -hmm. fucking like everything and then um I had some problems uh with my marks and I went to see an academic advisor and he goes it looks like you did pretty well in like your molecular bio kind of subjects how do you feel about major in genetics I'm like "Eh, yeah sounds good and then I just like started doing heaps of genetic classes and I'm like this is fucking awesome and then I remembered that's kind of what I'd always wanted to be so um, it's kind of come full circle and then um, my marks weren't great I'm not the best student mm-hmm. so I'm very enthusiastic and like I don't it, it, it's, it's, it's hard for me to hold my interest so I have like um, I need to be consistently exposed to novel things mm. for me, as you can probably tell if you've done your research <laughs> yeah. for, for me to be satisfied. So I found uni pretty tricky, especially the grinding middle year. 
Right. For me, for me, it was three and a half years. Wow. Yeah. So just getting through like metabolism and stuff, where it's just like you know, yeah, bulk <laughs> memorization of yep. pathways. And they say you don't have to memorize every pathway in the TCA cycle, every enzyme. Yeah, you do. <laughs> you do. Turns out when you get to the final test, you want to get a good mark. You have to. <laughs> and the so, cofactors. <laughs> and the cofactors. And all this shit. And I was just like, it took so long for the penny to drop on so many of these things and really grasp it. Because you know, you look at a, a poster of metabolism. Basically, what you learn in like you know six months or a year. Nothing's complex, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, each one of those cycles that are linked together, someone won a Nobel fucking prize for. So, yeah. so like you know, this is complicated stuff, and um, and it's challenging to wrap to wrap it around. So, um, that 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 was really difficult for me. First year was great because I'm being exposed to heaps of new ideas. Mm-hmm. Third year smashed it you know i got like hd average in third year nice because i was learning about all the cutting edge emerging tech yeah i'm learning about in this field what are the unanswered questions um so i was really excited by the end there um but about halfway through i realized uh only 52 percent of uh graduates were going to be um finding jobs after three months Wow. Right? That's so that's, that, that's terrifying. And, and you know who the biggest employer of them is? Who? Retail. <laughs> no, they're... So literally, you know, what, what does a science graduate say to you? Would you like fries with that? Like, is what we're living in now. Yeah. You know, so this, this is terrifying, right? So yeah. I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do when I finish? Because I'm not in that 52% of people that gets a job. I've got like a wham of 49. Yeah. You know, this is not like, and, and employers ask for things like your academic record. And I basically said, well, I have to put myself in a situation where an employer will never ask for my academic record. So I started seeing what um, some other people were doing around the world. My dad was like, uh, he, my dad's amazing. So almost all of my career has been influenced by him. And he was like, oh, you should check out this like um, DIY PCR thermal cycler so i was like oh cool so i checked out um it was coming out of biocurious in the states uh really cool really cool hack space i was lucky enough to visit there last year um and i think it was tito was um building the diy pcr and it was like this is a machine which is about twenty six thousand dollars if you buy it from a commercial lab you can get them for about five or six thousand dollars now this wasn't happening back then and these guys were building one and launched a Kickstarter and it was 700 US dollars. Whoa. And it worked. They still, we, I've used one. They're fantastic, right? Really? So, so that I was, I was blown away. I saw this movement. So I tried to find um, other people in Australia doing this and I'm searching online and there was none. So I was like, okay, well, I have to kind of build this. So I put a big shout out to all my friends. We had our first meeting at the Unibar and that's how it kind of began from there. Going from that transition of, okay, recognizing that this doesn't exist to mm-hmm. wanting to start this movement almost, that, yeah. that takes a lot of, um, I, I would say, courage and, and balls. I mean, Well, to- I think it, it does if you know where it might end up. But it's pretty easy to just set up a Facebook group. And I think the, the biggest thing is don't be scared to try. Don't be scared to fail. Yeah. Like, you know, the worst thing that can happen is I end up having drinks with a lot of other people that are interested in molecular biology. Right. So, so I think that that's the kind of thing. And the first meeting was huge, right? We had like 50 people. Oh. And then it wasn't what everyone expected. It was exactly what some people expected. So the next meeting was only about 12 people, right? So the, the courage is actually keeping it going Mm. when it's four people, when it's six people, when it's 12 people, and then keeping that going for two years, meeting every fortnight to every month, building a really solid group of people that really enjoy this. When you can do that, 
that's when this space emerges. It's easy to run one big meeting. Right. And now we get, you know, 30 to 50 people turn up to our meetings. Um, but the, the, the real courage is quitting your job, living poor, quitting, dropping out of uni because you, you really believe in what you're doing. Like I dropped, I dropped out of honours to do this because I thought this had much more potential. Really? And I have my own lab now. I don't need a PhD. Yeah, that's worked out great for you. It's, it it's, has. It's, it's amazing. But my question, how did you transition? Okay, um, you want to start this movement, uh, but how did you transition to actually uh, going into body modification? Oh, that's a really interesting one. So yeah, that's, so I saw grinding kind of emerging and I was, I was a bit like, I don't know whether this is biohacking or not. I don't really get it. Um, so I decided to, um, I was over in the States actually, I was doing indie bio. So I was launching, um, bio nascent, which was a, a company I did doing, um, Recombinant human breast milk in bacteria and yeast. Do you just mind getting a little closer to the mic? Oh, yeah, so the noise levels there are you you dropping. Yep. Um, yeah, so I was over in the States and I started getting, uh, I started thinking about it. I was, I was, I was meeting heaps of other hackers because, as I said, there's like just this huge density of biohackers. So we were talking really heavily, and I'm talking with, you know, oh, San Francisco is an awesome place. You know, I was meeting people that started labs in Canada, um, other countries sitting down having beers with them lots we're talking heaps i'm meeting all these people that i've been only spoken to over skype for years we're all just hanging out having beers so it was really really cool and we started talking a lot about like what is biohacking because we're, we're, we're creating this movement so it's really interesting to hear what other people are saying and we're talking a lot about grinding um and there wasn't much there wasn't much out back then it was it was still pretty new Oh, no, actually, there was there's a fair bit. There's like there was a, f- a little there's there's a, been a lot more happened since. Like the past year's been really exciting for grinding. Um, so I tried to find someone in San Francisco that could do it, and I found someone. And I talk, spoke to a few other biohackers about. I, I thought I'm really going to have to try this to see whether um, what the point of it is. Uh, and you know, journos report however they want, so they're calling this biohacking. So I'm like, well, is it? Well, I'll only know if I, if I do it. I found someone in America that, that was doing it and I didn't get it done over there. And I came back to Sydney and I said to a guy named Ryan Bethancourt that I was going to get an indie bio tattoo and a microchip in the next year. I got both. <laughs> um, and it's good to make those promises because you, you have to hold yourself to your word. So I got back and I met, uh, I met Joltron who put in my Opal implant and I got this chip done. And then I started using it and playing around with it and, and kind of hacking it. And then I started to see where the potential was, where, what things it was useless for. I started, and I think you really need it under your skin to start to grasp the technology. You can think about it without it, but until you actually try it, play with it, you see what's practical and what's not. And then I got really excited about, because um, I'm you know, interested in all different technologies. How does this interact with different technologies? Where, where does it save time? Where, where are the kind of the points that it could take off? And um, through that, we started just doing some videos with like uh, uni students and high school students. And we ended up like fucking making um, ABC News. And then we fucking, on the back of that, we had like a week of nonstop media because we were talking about um, using it uh, for bank transactions. Mm. I know what it really, there's a couple of people that talked about it, but one of the benefits of being pragmatic over like a traditional, really siloed hacker, because even hackers can get siloed in like being, you know, anti-establishment. People had done these transactions before, but they're like with Bitcoin and they didn't publicize it heaps. 
So, so Bitcoin with the, the chip in your hand. Yeah, and it's easy to do because it's open source. Right. And all the code's there, so you can write things to do this. But you want to, you know, do a transaction with Visa or MasterCard, that's yeah. a lot more tricky. Right. With Bitcoin, you can. it's like a wallet in your hand, yeah. essentially. So you can just offload all your money in that you could chip and, yeah. and then um take it out whenever you um you could there's a few different ways you could do it it depends on how much space is on there it depends on how you've written stuff right. so with bitcoin there's kind of two addresses um there's like a request and there's uh like a pin mm. so you got private key and your public key so it's like an invoice and a pin right. that's kind of the way i'm thinking about it at the moment um when you request money though it's it's, it's a little bit more complicated so it, it, it like if I have if I have just a wallet address, you can easily send money to me. If I want to request a certain amount of money, that actually needs to get kind of encoded in a certain way. I see. So there needs to be some processing done, but you can write that onto um, okay. your thumb right. um, or, or wherever your implant is. But um, there's some new technology coming out soon, which is going to be completely complete game changer, uh, which is Vivo Key by Amal from Dangerous Things. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it's sick. So it's like a one meg of data. Um, it's going to be able to emulate any card that kind of interrogates it. So a lot of people, you know, a lot of criticisms over my latest chip, the Opal card, is like, oh, I'm going to have to fucking get a hundred hmm. chips up my arm to, you know, for all my bank cards and Opal cards and driver's license. And this, this can just emulate everything. So I can listen to what is, is being requested and then send back the correct card. So for one chip, you can have a whole heap. Oh, so you can have multiple cards. And you can also do things like two-factor authentication on it. So it can oh. do computing, like so pretty like, serious computing on it. Oh, wow. And and this this will, will really revolutionize things. Like you could have your, your MasterCard, Visa, and Bitcoin, and Opal card, and driver's license, Medicare credentials, all these things on there all at once. And and, and that's that becomes really interesting. Then you've got people like Tim Cannon from Grindhouse Wetware. They're doing things like, you know, biometric data. So if you can combine these things or even have both of them, you're going to have things like go to hospital, doctor taps a smartphone on your arm, downloads your saturated oxygen levels, glucose levels, heart rate, all this stuff like super Fitbit, things that Fitbit can't do because it's external. Um, And and I think that that's where this technology becomes interesting because, um, you know, I say to myself, why is this better than a Fitbit? Why is my implant better than a ring? Why is this application i've just made any different than just having a fucking button that i push because it's a lot less invasive yeah why would an ordinary person ever use or engage with this technology and that's those are the cases where you'll see this come in and i rack my brain to think of those solutions because when they are there there's no one else playing in this space and that's a good space to be in when you're doing startups. Yeah. No, that, that's interesting. You brought up the, the medical application. I mean, um, I think I, I watched a lecture on that. It, it's fascinating. I think that that's where I'm very hopeful about, you know, where you get these biometric mm. uh, and that like you get your blood glucose, oxygen level, all you, you could imagine. I mean, we, we talked about uh, the kid that came up with the, um, the prostate cancer. The prostate. You could yeah. imagine this technology developing and being able to diagnose those sort of diseases. Most definitely. And you can also have, um, you know, we, we I've, I've seen papers, but not patents um, for things like microfluidic implantable devices that can measure um, blood, glu- blood glucose levels in type one diabetics and it will do things like have dissolvable barriers so it will release insulin into the blood but it can also do things or or glucose and it will do things like um, connect via Bluetooth to a phone and call an ambulance. Wow. So while you've, you've got this, you know, 30 minute stopgap or something like that while an ambulance comes to get you and like everyone who's, who's playing in this space knows 
people's lives will be saved by us adopting this technology. But people are, are squeamish and also resistant because of the you know elements of this like, government dystopia, yeah. um, tracking, identification. You know, we microchip animals. We don't do yeah. it as humans. So there's there's a, a big conversation that society wants to have. I'm just like fucking vaccinations and microchips for everyone. <laughs> do you, do you have, but when it comes to, you've raised them. Um, so, so I was going to ask you, you know, there are people that are opposed to this and some are adamantly opposed to this. Do you have any reservations looking into the future when it comes to this type of technology? Do they have, is there any, any, any validity in some of the things that they've raised? Yeah, nah. <laughs> um, oh shit like um i've thought I've, I've thought about it heaps so it's not like yeah. you know um i can always cut these implants out of me yeah like if we want to talk like scary levels of tracking like building massive dna databases that's like that's terrifying it's not like you can't go and fucking change your dna no so so like you know that's the stuff we should be worried about like nsa they're already monitoring like yeah. everything you know the nsa has a, like a call a copy of this this interview right now listening Probably, in a yeah, mobile yeah. phone so and everyone's dick pics as well that's it yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly right can you imagine their porn collection oh Holy dude fucking shit <laughs> um so so you know the um i'm not saying surveillance isn't bad yeah i'm just saying worry about the right type of surveillance i can cut a microchip out of my thumb yes. i can't throw away my mobile phone like you can't live in society without a mobile phone yeah. and now you probably can't even really live without a smartphone so so like and you know when i pick, download the fucking centerlink app have you seen the, the fucking permissions that it needs? Microphone, calendar, GPS. So like, you know, that's fucked. Like if I'm at the beach, Centrelink could call me up and say, why aren't you at a fucking interview? You know, like that's terrifying. Me having a microchip that basically has my bank card on it. So when I'm at the beach, I can swim without some cunt stealing my fucking wallet off the beach. That That's actually helpful, right? So I'm, I'm interested in how do we do this? I can reprogram every single thing on this chip. Like there's technology that allows me to do things like, you know, flash the unique ID and stuff. So, so like having hackers in control of the technology is a good thing. Having hackers engage the government with the directions they think the technology should go is a good thing. Having big corporations involved with government, not necessarily a bad thing, but who's leading the conversation, who's challenging it, what conversations are being had. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of, of, of big companies. I think that, they just need to be managed correctly. Like mm. I like Monsanto. I don't like Nestle. So, yeah. You like Monsanto, not Monsanto. Nestle. Really? Yeah. Well, they're like I'm the a Monsanto fan. Yeah. Oh man. They're like, they're like the Maccas of, of GMO. They like fucking. You know, every kind I met in San Francisco got trained by Monsanto because oh, they just employ everyone, right? So they're a huge company with with money. Um, they don't turn over heaps. Like if you compare them to some, some like big pharmaceutical companies, they turn over... Whole Foods as well. You can turn over people like that. Big or, yeah, big organic is actually a fucking thing and they're they're the problem, not not, right. not Monsanto. Like, oh, I, man, I could literally do a four-hour rant about this. So <laughs> we won't go heaps into it now because I feel very strongly. I've read every single court case Monsanto's had and you know what? Like if, you know, they say if you want to make... Uh, a kid an atheist you get him to read the bible yeah yeah you want to make someone like pro monsanto you get him to read the court, ca court <laughs> oh, cases we, oh, we do a uh, post chat as part of these interviews me and we talk about it so I'll, I'll bring him around to our monsanto, yeah. <laughs> monsanto love there yeah and i think it, it actually reflects it reflects a lack of scientific education in the community oh, yeah. so part of the reason we set up spaces like this is to engage with these people you know we've 
fucking cunts like Friends of the Earth that are an anti-GMO lobby and activist group that turn over $2 million a year, their financial records are online, flying protesters to our events during Science Week to hand out flyers against us and we literally turn over 20 grand a year saying spreading lies saying things like we're unregulated we don't know what we're doing we're not skilled we're not trained and it's complete and utter bullshit you know um and 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 this is a manifestation of the organic industry and my friends are like you know i've got heaps of hippie friends oh why are you so fucking against organic it's because you buying organic at the store those dollars eventually trickle to a company like this Mm. that tries to shut me down you know monsanto feed a fucking billion people how many hippies feed a billion people? None, because you can't yeah. do it with organic farming. That's you know, right. you need to use GMO and conventional crops. Like, you know, it would be lovely if we could all like, you know, save the world by having a veggie garden in our backyard. Mm. But the reality is that that doesn't work. Especially when you have 7 billion people to feed. It's, it's, and it, by 2050, uh, it's going to be a lot nine, more. Some, right. Like some nine, right? Crazy amount of, yeah. People. You need real solutions. And this is why I urge pragmatism. Like, yeah. you know, put your ideology aside. Look at the science. Look at the companies that are around and find fucking solutions and just do it. Like, yeah. like really, be, be brave enough as a greenie, especially, to put aside your ideology and look at the data. Like, mm-hmm. this is part of the reason I'm with Science Party, is the Greens are ideologically opposed to nuclear and GMO, even though they have demonstrated benefits. And, that, and I can't budge on that. Like, you know, I'm not going to let the world die because I want to be right. You know, I'd rather fucking right. save it, change my mind and opinion. Yeah. And when you're agreeing with that, you become a scientist. And that's why the Science Party exists. Right. So, And, and that was what, that was the impetus for you to uh, actually get involved in politics. Because, you know, I hear Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, he had this conversation with Sam Harris yeah. about how he doesn't get involved in politics and how his approach is, you know, to stay away from it so that he can get a bigger audience and educate people um, about science. But obviously you have a different approach. Yeah, well, I think that's typical fucking boomer rhetoric. Like, do, do as I say, not as I do. And like, if he really wanted to make a difference, he would fucking run. Right? It's a bit tricky in America because you have a two-party system. But, like, you know, fuck, if Arnold Schwarzenegger can become governor of California, <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson could be, you know, minister for science. He's a rock star. Yeah, exactly. And he's got a high public profile. He cares. He's smart. Like, don't tell people, well, we need more scientists in politics and, and, and don't do it because, like, he can still do everything he's doing now yeah. and more by joining politics. And, like, you know, he doesn't have to, but there's no reason why he shouldn't. Mm. Um, and I think it, it, it lacks integrity. He's an amazing guy, but, like, why, why wouldn't you use that position of power? Um, other thing, Nobel Prize winners. They're the types of people that should join politics because, effectively, when you win your Nobel Prize, your scientific career is over and you become an evangelist for science. That's your role. Mm. To go around the world, sitting in functions as a Nobel laureate, getting up, giving keynote presentations, saying you need to donate more money to science. So I feel Neil deGrasse Tyson's in that same category and he should run for fucking politics. Like he's like, oh, we need more cunts in politics. We need more scientists in politics. Yeah, I didn't see him coming out and supporting Science Party or me when I ran and we definitely like let him know that we'd listen to what he said. So yeah, follow through. Come on. 
come come visit my lab cunt <laughs> <laughs> well he's coming on the 29th so. oh yeah <laughs> not, not to visit me <laughs> <laughs> like to make money and to spread science knowledge yeah and it's, it's, it's good and it's fun but um, I also kind of like uh, Biofoundry sits in a different space which is we're not pitched at like the lowest common denominator now you do need that right you do need a certain amount and what I'd actually love is for everyone in Australia to have a higher level of scientific education because then we can do even better things mm-hmm. and I think it's actually a civic responsibility and duty to study science for every single person as it is to do jury duty community service art be a functional member of your community you should have a base level of scientific knowledge and if we had that places like biofoundry would be able to do even cooler stuff mm. and i feel like neil degrasse tyson has to pander to the the, the lowest yeah it'd be better if the the medium was shifted mm-hmm. and we could actually have really good conversations about you know things like square kilometer array what do we want to look for what's the, yeah. what are the really important answers to be had and i wouldn't mind people being against gmo if the whole of the country's scientific literacy was increased right because there are real conversations that we have to have about GM. Yeah. It's things like what promoters are we using? Yeah. How does that affect things like horizontal gene transfer in the environment? Mm. And there's, it's like, there's a low chances and stuff. Yep. But these are the questions we should be having. Not like, is it safe to eat it? Because clearly it fucking is. Yeah. You know, a trillion meals have been served with GMO yeah. without any bad effects. You can never prove it's safe. You can only prove it's dangerous. So yeah. it's good enough for me. It's 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 interesting you say. Um, th- yeah, the scientific literacy that people lack in, in our society, and I think this is you know, a, a global issue, um, it can lead to really some downstream uh, effects, that, that the consequences that we don't want to have. And this mm. is going back to your getting involved in politics. I think that's a... a, a a beautiful attempt to to change a society in, in the way that we want it you know mm-hmm. to have a more literate society and you know to influence policy in such a way that reflects the science definitely not, not people's idea of what science is and misconceptions mm. of what science is and we're seeing this fucking with everywhere like trump right like mm. things like like um fake news alternative facts just like like what the fuck this is nonsense right like how does this it's a circus yeah um this is a time when ordinary people have to stand up like you know it's scary when sometimes people like jackie lambie Mm. are representing me better in politics just because they're an ordinary person Mm. right yeah like someone who's not fucking drunk the kool-aid and 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 doing this on there with maybe the sole purpose of getting re-elected rather than actually wanting to make change they're just playing the politics game you know they're career politicians that's right and I think the problem is actually career politics that's it yeah so and this this is why people like Neil deGrasse Tyson have to get off their ass and do it and, the, and if there's anything I, that you can take away from like the interviews like fuck all these things I've done literally came about by instead of just like thinking or talking about it just getting up and doing it mm. meeting other people who are also doing the same thing mm-hmm. and there's you know there's a lot of them out there and then doing it like you know just set up a facebook event go along to a political meeting like through all these things you know good stuff happens but if you're sitting at home on facebook it's not always going to eventuate it can you know but um it's a lot harder and i think the best thing is yeah yeah um if you're if you're interested and keen in these ideas go out and meet other people if there aren't people around set up a meeting group for those people jump Mm. on meetup jump on reddit organize a meeting group go have some beers if that's what you're into um i certainly am (laughs) get drunk make some friends meet other people outside your circles encourage your friends to share it don't be scared that's right and even if four people turn up they might be the most four most interesting people in your entire city so you should do it and 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 through that like you actually have changed like i'm changing the world people listen to what i have to say yeah and 
it wasn't difficult to be honest like really it's 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 a it's a, a little bit of work across a long time consistently taking risk not worrying about little things like eating or paying rent but really like you know don't, 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 it's not it's not bad to be poor yeah. it's not bad to be poor you know i don't own a nice car yeah i have very little money to spend on my hobbies but you know um I have a really fun, interesting life and I feel very satisfied every day. So I think money comes and goes. It's the experiences in life that make it worth living. Um, you know, t- having talked to you for a bit, the democratization of science seems to be something you're, you're very passionate about. Yeah. Um, why is that? Yeah, so I, th- I think... Um, I uh, So I, I had a friend, um, my, one of my dad's mates, who was um, a partner in Ernst & Young. And he said to me, I said... Um, why do they have to make... I was, like, working at Macca's at the time earning $4.60 an hour or something. $4.92 it was as a 15-year-old. And I said, you know, it just really sucks. I wish they paid us more money. And he said to me, um, it's good to pay people low money when they're young because it increases their ability to stay at school. If you make it too appealing for them to leave, mm. they won't do it. And then... Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. I thought on that for a long time about is it fair to pay people less than what they're worth? And sometimes it is, right? Sometimes it's not. Um, and then that that combined that that kind of lead, led my economic thinking for a while, thinking about poverty and how do we create these cycles and stuff. And then when I was at uni, I had another conversation with him, and he, he said being poor at uni is good because it's character building, and the best thing we could kind of do is actually take people from rich backgrounds and make everyone live a uni life, which for me was working a part-time job, job, struggling to pay rent because most of my money was spent on beer. Mm. <laughs> so, so I'm eating rice, eating vitamin C tablets, drinking beer, living close to uni with ocean views in a tiny shoebox apartment, but it actually worked out cheaper for me to live in a place with ocean views. So it's like, you know, it's, it's like this real kind of crazy thing about being at uni and then working part-time in a board game store, having heaps of fun, but also struggling to like balance work life, you know, and school all together. So, um, it was really character building, right? Yeah. But I wish that everybody had that same thing. Mm-hmm. And the democratization is basically creating equitable outcomes. So no matter whether you have, no matter whether you're rich or poor, you can still access biofoundry. Mm. And I might charge you differently if you can afford it. I'm more than happy to ask for more money or accept more money, mm-hmm. but we're not going to put turn people away because they're poor. So I think that's the democratization. The other thing is engaging with technologies that democratize it as well. So when I think about this, we, we say lowering the technological and cost barrier to studying science. So that's things like um, showing people ways to access journals that might be behind paywalls. Um, behind oh like as in uh so yeah using services like sci-hub where you can go on and you can access any any journal i i ethically don't agree with people charging for papers right so especially I, if it's government funded taxpayer government uh, funding funded. now says in australia that you if you're more than 20 percent government funded you have to publish in an open access journal nice. i don't even agree in open access journals really yeah i believe in places like archive and bioarchive can you what, what are those yeah so they're they're basically they, they just check the formatting and make sure that there's nothing crazy in there 
right. like no perpetual motion machines or anything. And then they publish it. And then the peer review is every person that reads the paper. Ah. It doesn't get taken down either, generally. So the good thing is it actually forces you to employ your critical thinking skills. It's like open science. Yeah, it is. So, so I'm, I'm interested in solutions like that. Like, why the fuck do we need journal like, uh, publishers? Like, mm. They don't do anything. Yeah. And they're the only ones that get paid in the whole process. The people who do the peer review, the people who do the research pay for the privilege, right? right. Like, that, that's factored the into grants. for the research as well. Yeah. This is it, yeah. right? So, and, and it's just nonsense. Like, how does this industry exist? Like, right. they're taking, taking everyone along for a ride. Mm. And it's like, well, you know, when was the last time you saw a maths article published in a journal? You don't. Right. They don't publish in journals. You know why? Why? Because everyone's a peer. Uh, Everyone that reviews the paper, anyone that can understand it can tell you whether it's right or wrong. So, because it's logic, right? It's a formal logic. So, like, it, it, it either exi- it either is right. or it isn't, and no one publishes something that isn't. And they publish in their, they they publish everything open access by themselves. They don't need someone to peer review it. They don't need right. someone to say, "Oh, now give us fifteen hundred dollars and we'll make it available to the public yeah. for thirty five dollars a go." Yeah. You know. They just publish on archive, ARXIV, right? Right. I think that, that, that see, even going back to the democratization of science, mm. the, the established academia that, you know, going through these journals, um, giving them $2,000 or $1,500 mm. to publish research that you've conducted and somehow they're going to profit off that through their yeah. subscriptions. I think that's ridiculous. And again, that, you know, there's a barrier to people who want to conduct science. And and it, it's fascinating, you know, open access and open science um, and the ones that you mentioned, they're mm. moving away uh, from that model. Um, I might also add in there, it also changes the way that science funding goes and the way that scientific experiments are done. How so? Because metri- so metrics used by academics are heavily tied into journals. So you have things like H indexes and, and citations and things like this. So you, you have like... Um, people start designing their grants and experiments so that they can advance their career. Mm. So, so scientists, for anyone who's, uh, who, doesn't, who isn't aware, scientists' pro- uh, career progresses not through the amount of money they bring in necessarily, but, but how um, revered they are as a scientist. And that's generally indicated by how often they publish and how highly highly cited they are by other scientists. So what the respect kind of is mm-hmm. in, an, in, in these metrics. The thing is, though, there, there's a lot of bullshit around this. You know, a bad paper can get referenced as much as a good paper. Right. So, so that there, there's inbuilt buffers and things to try and measure this out. But you only progress in your scientific career through publishing. Right. And, and there's different metrics to work out how that is. So sometimes people might say things like, oh, I'm going to publish as much shit quality research as I can and they'll do things like minimum publishable research because if they can turn one good paper into three average papers Mm -hmm. it might actually advance their career increase their ability to get funding so journals are responsible for a lot of problems we have in science um and we can fix this by going back to another system that rewards quality over quantity mm-hmm. there's 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 efforts to change this mm-hmm. in scientific community and we we're talking a bit about public funding for science there are public metrics started to come in so not just like journal citations but how many times this is talked about in social media how many times it's shared and this really changes metrics around because like um, it starts to say, okay, well, if it's publicly funded, maybe it should be in what the public is interested in. Right. So, so there's, there's some changes happening. And I think that like, you know, journal, journals are like the blockbuster of science. They're like on the way out. 
And, video and easies of science. That's it. If I, you can't, I, can't, <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait. And the good thing about this is, even if a paper's wrong, like take Seralini, um, Seralini's anti-GMO paper that got retracted, right? Yes. The best thing that these papers can do is actually be wrong because it generates critical thinking. Yeah. And that's, that's the biggest challenge. It's not even science education. It's just getting people to switch their fucking brains on for two seconds. You know, with, without critical thinking, you get people doing research without any filters. And that's yeah. when you get conspiracy theories. It's when you get, you know, anti-GMO, anti-vaccines. It's not research. It's research without critical thinking. Mm. And, and good on these people for at least looking and reading. Yeah. But the problem is, how do you discriminate what's right and wrong? And that's a skill you're taught at university. Right. So, in, in, so you know, even with the peer-reviewed papers that we have, you know, um, there might be a, a paper that's not well understood. And yeah. people, like, this happens a lot with climate change and mm-hmm. Potholler54, uh, who's got a YouTube channel, deals with this very well, where people misconstrue, they, they take things the wrong way and, and um and this comes back to not developing critical thinking, but do you think that there's going to be a propensity or a, a, a ten- tendency to um, have misunderstandings mm. when we publish this sort of research out in the open? Um, where it, Look, peer review, I think, has issues. I mean, you have people who are reviewing your research who aren't even experts sometimes in the field. You'll get chiropractors reviewing mm. something in like medicine or whatever, you know? Yeah. And that leads to issues. But you think there'd be other issues popping up where you might get a surge, maybe initially even a mm. surge of like the pseudoscience interpretation of the research. Yeah, and the, eventually people will learn and, and figure there, it out. There's also, there's also like, just going back to that peer review stuff as well, there are fields that are so small there's three people in the world that do it yeah and if someone gets published it actually might limit their chance to get grants so there's all these biases in there and I, I speak to science all the time that tell me these crazy stories um, about this but yeah there's already pseudoscience being published right oh yeah so and also in in ways that are more accessible so we think about the traditional journal format but Mm -hmm. i think what will happen is um the journal format will break down a little bit so so we will see um if you read watson and crick's original paper and the discovering the double helical structure of dna it's tiny this thing's like you know like not even a page long on the discovery of the double helical structure of DNA. If that was discovered today, there'd be fucking like, you know, 1,500, 3,000 words in nature and it's easy to read. There's right. no obfuscation. I think we're going to move back to this. I saw, I referenced the paper in my honours from 1899 and it started with gentlemen. <laughs> That's the first line. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually kind of like this conversation between people finding things that are interesting. Yeah. And this is what blog posts are. This is what Facebook conversations and posts are. So the biohackers... We're always talking online, right? Saying, posting graphs. Um, Sebastian was posting spectral data of his halogen lamp that's in his house saying, why is there a dip at 600 nanometers? You know? And like, we're having these conversations. We're discovering stuff. This is traditionally how science was done. Science is obfuscated when you read it. If you were trying to read a a nature article, nature's pretty good. The jargon and the density of information is so high Mm -hmm. that it means the ordinary person, even some scientists, even if you read a scientific journal outside your field, mm. you can't understand it. Yeah. And there's no need for that. It's scientific hubris. Mm. It's, it's, sci- it's professors eating their own shit, right? Mm. In their own bullshit saying, look how smart I am. And anyone that tells you otherwise is lying. Like, you know, that they, they say, oh, I'm going to say it the right way or anything like this. There's no reason why you couldn't make that accessible to the public. Or someone educate... So, say, for example, if someone from the social sciences was to read one of my scientific papers, they should be able to understand it. 
there's no reason why someone in a different field or yeah. discipline that's as educated as I am yeah. shouldn't be able to understand what I'm doing. Right. I, I totally agree with you. And that's something I think Richard Feynman was very, uh, a big proponent. He hated jargon. Mm. Um, he was very aware of, you know, the, the, um, practical, the, the jargon, but also the, the, uh, conventions that each field had. Yeah. Um, he was very critical of that, but going back to this peer mm. review, you know, do you think it'd be something like Netflix where you get like stars mm. on publications and you get like a, there's a bar that tells you, you know, so many, so, so many people reported this as being bullshit and so many people like this. Do, do you see like a future? I like, actually see something even more complex than this, but I'm working on a project which is looking at dismantling the journal industry. And I can't tell you, you can't. guys just yet. I'll do, I'll, do, I'll do your deal. You can come back and interview us once. Yeah, yeah, there. for sure. We would love to do that. So, um, okay, let's... But it, just, just, just broadly, yep. there's emerging technologies that allow us to, to, to do stuff like this that are simple to program, easy to use, deliver value to everyone. If you think about it much longer than that, you'll work out exactly what I'm trying to do. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not hard. Like, um, yeah. Uh, j- journal journalism is like fucking prime for disruption. You know, like sometimes you see these industries and you're just like, yeah, like like you know Uber with taxis. Even though Uber wasn't really disruptive, they're just like, you know, there's so many problems facing this industry. We can come in, solve all the problems in one go. Yeah, and and when you see things like that, they're too tantalising. You have to go for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, cool. I don't know if you guys can hear it. It's that boring Jurassic Park movie music that Alex thought would be so good to listen to. You don't even know where your speakers are. He's holding his his uh, Air Mac or Mac Air, whatever that shit is called. Well, uh, I bet you thought that was a good idea to start the, how we should start the podcast. Yeah, it looks like that failed miserably, didn't it? Anyway. Uh, look, sometimes you, you hit, sometimes you miss, and that was a miss. But yeah, I suppose you're going to be shifty about it and still include that. Because every time I say, man, that better not go in, it always ends up in the podcast. And, and yeah, sometimes <laughs> I don't get a chance to recheck these. I just, I just uh, take his word and I think, okay, he's not going to put anything silly in there. And next thing you know... Think again. There's lots of silly shit in here. <laughs> yeah, but the Jurassic Park theme I think is pretty appropriate. He's a man of my era, old meow, because uh, old I, meow. I remember um, I remember seeing Jurassic Park when it first came out as well. Actually, Jurassic Park is the first uh, movie that I ever saw like an illegal version of, a bootleg version of. What do you mean? My friend went to America and he came back... Um, from that trip with Jurassic Park on a VHS tape that he'd bought from some guy in the street. So like this is back in the days when people used to go and take like a, a movie camera into a, 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 a cinema oh. and they used to like film it, like hide it in a bag and like and half, the, half the shots like kind of this guy's like walking. walking and you yeah. see their heads walking yeah, around yeah, like, man, yeah. what's in going the on? The theater. <laughs> and, and then they, they take that tape and they like make copy after copy after copy on a VHS take and the thing just degrades and mm. degrades. It was so shit, this like version of Jurassic Park. But it was the first movie and it was so cool. Like we got it and um, we all watched it. We were probably... 
I don't know, I'm just guessing, I was probably like near six, so 12 years old or something. Right. And we're like watching this Jurassic Park and this like really blurry, fuzzy thing <laughs> with people and thought it was so cool. <laughs> probably because it was like, you know, a, a bootlegged version of it as well. But uh, it was a very good movie, a movie from my childhood. I love that, it. That's funny, man. Uh, and some of the millennials, I think most of the millennials who are listening, they probably don't even remember what a VH tape vhs tape was um yeah and soon people won't even know what dvds and cds are but i remember back in the days man because i grew up with uh, vhs tapes and those cassette tapes in pakistan we didn't have um cds or dvds um in fact when i came here it was in 1999 vhs's were you know widely used yeah when when did cd and dvds become like it was it was uh no i remember getting cds 2003 early high school well kind of they were a bit expensive and kind of new then. They'd probably been out for a bit, but yeah, I remember early high school, so that would have been yeah. 1995. Right, right. I remember buying CDs for like five dollars, three ninety five, four ninety five for a CD. That's ridiculous, dude. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> like, no one's gonna pay that much now. Yeah. Um, for like 128 megabytes. What in? Yeah. The- um, I know we wanted to have a discussion about Monsanto, and. Large oh, yeah. corporations and things uh, like that. Oh yeah, he he. See, I was um, well. Meow put a razor, and I've heard, this is something I've heard from. This is something I've heard not only from Meow but from you and from Science Babe or Sci Babe on, on the Joe Rogan Experience. Her support for GMOs. Look, personally, I, I don't think GMOs. I don't have any issues with GMOs. I think it's it's a piece of technology, and people could use it for good or for evil. That's up to you. Uh, uh, but Monsanto, I mean, Meow was a big fan of it, uh, of Monsanto, and I think um, d- d- I've heard other pod- uh, other scientists also talk about, you know, some of the positive things that Monsanto um, does. But uh, and and Meow was saying that you know the pharmaceutical companies are way worse than Monsanto is, and uh, perhaps I agree. Yeah, all that is true, but you know. I still have reservations when it comes to Monsanto because when I was younger, I mean, before I got into like like science and scientific literacy, dude, I was a full-blown conspiracy <laughs> theorist. <laughs> yeah. And Monsanto was like portrayed so negatively on those YouTube documentaries, you know? Yeah. I'm like, man, these guys are assholes. They're killing all these people. They're doing all these things. Um, so maybe there's, there's a bit of ignorance involved when it comes to Monsanto. I think the thing is, and... Um Meow yeah, had that great quote I remember. He said, "If you, he goes, they say if you want to make uh, um, a kid an atheist, you get them to read the Bible. Hmm. Or if you want to make someone a Monsanto fan, you get them to read Monsanto court cases. Right. Um, I think that, uh, from my, what I understand, there's a lot of misconceptions about like these Monsanto court cases. You see like lots of documentaries get made about how this big evil company is coming down um, on like poor farmers and things like that. But in a lot of these cases that you find out that it, the farmers actually just stealing the seeds. And a lot of the times the people that dob them in to Monsanto and say, hey, you got to find these guys are their peers or other farmers. And the reason why they're dobbing them in is because they're paying for these Monsanto seeds to get the benefit of them. Um, and then they find out that another farmer down the road's getting them for free by stealing them. And, and that puts them in an economic disadvantage. How are they stealing them? Oh, I, I, I think they like save them year after year and things like that. And I think I've heard of this, you know, they, they have, um, they've, they, uh, I may be mistaken, but I've heard where Monsanto creates these seeds that after the first generation, you can't, 
like resow them and and create crops from them. I think they just cross them. They have like um, I don't know. They have some genius way of making sure that the the next uh, generation is not going to be the same as the first generation. There's going to be a lot of diversity, and so those crops are going to become useless. But this is uh, this may be genetically modified to do that. But this is a practice, if if I'm not mistaken, that farmers have been using, and these seed companies have been using for like hundreds of years, where they to ensure that the farmers come back and get those seeds off them again, they make sure that they can only use it for the first time. And well, the, the thing is as well, like um, it's my understanding that. If you want to buy seeds from Monsanto, you have it written into your contract that Monsanto will look after your interests and sue anybody who tries to steal that intellectual property. Because if you're paying somebody for a product and somebody else is stealing that product and getting it for free, that puts you at an economic disadvantage, right? So Monsanto have a duty to their customers to protect their intellectual property because if they don't protect it then their customers also lose yeah and well, monsanto also loses so that's why that's why in a lot of these court cases the people that are actually uh dobbing people in and getting them are other farmers other farmers yeah. because they're like hey you're ripping us off you're not ripping monsanto off you're ripping us off because yeah. we're paying for this product and you're getting it for free which means you can charge less for your seeds which means you sell more and it puts us at an economic disadvantage yeah especially if, if they're competing if farmers are competing against one another that's important but playing devil's advocate i mean if there was someone out there um they, they could take this position the position they, they might think that hey that's very convenient of you to consider the farmer's perspective and not even mention all the profits that monsanto would make from selling this sort of these seeds and and I, if i could add you know um a few years back when i really like when i was into those conspiracy theory documentaries and maybe there may be some merit to some of the things they said i don't know that's ignorance and um but but it was interesting because they were saying that about three hundred thousand farmers in india or sri lanka or one of those countries have committed suicide because of you know the of the the stress that monsanto places upon these farmers and that may be true but um what i realized is that farming itself is such a stressful stressful job you know the yield mm. of your crop varies from one year to the next year and so that you know you can imagine if if you don't get anything out and all of a sudden you're in complete debt that would cause some suicidal thoughts it, to come it, up it, in your head especially yeah. if you're trying to feed your family and and you know people depend on you and you can't provide i'm not sure if that is specific to monsanto i feel like that may be something specific to the farming industry as a whole and it's interesting because um the suicide rate for Indian farmers went up before Monsanto started selling BT cotton in India. Really? Yeah, it actually spiked before it and they Why? came in just after. Uh, I think the, a lot of those things you said, like cotton takes a lot of water and stuff like that. So um, I think they had like droughts and things and, right. and, and, pests and died. But an interesting thing is um, the, the cotton that they were using, the BT cotton they were using, was actually... Uh, brought in illegally into India by farmers and was starting to sell it before Monsanto went and started selling it as well. So, so, they were so, stealing so the farmers were stealing this BT cotton because they recognised the benefits of it, right? So they were like, the, the product that Monsanto was selling, um, they, were, they were stealing it to try and get the benefits out of it 
before Monsanto got in there and started selling it to them like legally. So to make the argument that they were selling this faulty product and caused stress for the Indian no, farmers I don't think, died. I don't think the argument was that they, that they were selling faulty products. I think what um, the implication of that, it was a documentary or some interview that I watched and they were saying that the stress of, you know, um, these farmers only having seeds that last them for, you know, one year or... Um, that induces a certain level of stress on them that wouldn't have been there without Monsanto. But again, this goes back to what we talked about. These companies, seed companies before Monsanto, I believe, Mm. would create these seeds that were only good for one-time use. So, yeah, I think that's what the argument was. And I'm not sure if that argument holds water, you know, because um, I, I did a project in my undergrad for this leadership program where, you know, I was working on small-scale farming. And this is a, but this is a good segue for the next next thing I want to uh, raise, and that's, you know, organic farming and this GMO, uh, 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 organic farming and, and, you know, uh, on one extreme and GMOs on this other extreme. Um, that, you know, uh, Miao said that you don't have organic farmers uh, feeding the whole world. It's impossible. You need genetically modified or like or GMO, conventional farming techniques. Or conventional yeah. farming techniques to do that. I agree with him to a certain extent, but I kind of disagree because uh, in that project that I worked on, this is one of the things that they were addressing. There's big problems with the way that farming is conducted, right? now in terms of removing biodiversity creating monocultures that could potentially get wiped out when you know because there's no diversity in that population as well as influencing or affecting the biodiversity of all the trees that you cut you know you cut down rainforest to create land Mm. to to grow these these crops but that's farming as well that that is farming but that's large scale large scale farming there's small scale farming that People have been, you know, this, there's a movement that's going on where... Well, th- probably most of the farms in the world are subsistence farms and they're in developing nations. Like like when we talk farming, because w- we're like living in a Western country, we think all of this large-scale farming all the time. But to, to be honest, I don't think that would be represent the most amount of farming that's done in the world. Most amount of the farming would be... You know, people who have a backyard farm in developing countries and can't afford to buy food, so they farm their own food. But the problem with that is, right, the problem with farming on such a small scale is if you have to farm all day to make your food, when are you going to have the time to make podcasts? (laughs) When are you going to have the time to conduct science? When are you going to have the time to build a sculpture? When are you going to have time to write a piece of music? So these are the things you lose out of your culture. And so so you've got to kind of think about it on this scale. Like, yeah, sure, everyone can just quit their jobs and, like, start farming in their backyard and we'll all live, like, in nature with hippies. But then we won't have a podcast to listen to. No, that's that's not what I meant. Um, so, uh, for instance, in Sydney, towards the Richmond area, that's northwest um, for the guys who aren't from Sydney, they are these small-scale farms that provide food um, to the local community. So rather than going to Woolies and Coles, which you know underpay their farmers, there's all these other issues that, again, isn't related to GMO per se, but it's about sustainability. And I don't think that the way we're going about it, you know, these large-scale fa- farms, I don't think those are sustainable. I think the sustainability comes from 
smaller scale farms that that provide for the their local communities but that then doesn't address the needs of cities where you have millions of people um who need those food and perhaps those yeah. small scale farms may never be able to provide i, for I think them. Uh, there's nothing wrong with taking real problems like you're right there's definitely some real problems that we need to discuss around conventional agriculture um and there's nothing that stops us using like recognizing those problems and using techniques to mitigate them uh so if, if we find something that works in organic agriculture there's nothing stopping that a conventional farmer using that technique sure um whereas it kind of doesn't really work the other way around but i wanted to i wanted to get back actually into this supporting monsanto thing because I, I find this happens a lot you, you almost get like I'm not a huge fan of large corporations. I'm, I'm kind of I don't hate them either. I, I kind of I think it really depends on the corporation. Um, I don't think Monsanto is that bad, but I don't necessarily feel the need to support them either. But um, I find I end up doing it a lot because I find a lot of the kind of rhetoric around it is is actually just crap. Yeah. What do you mean? Like, like we were just discussing before about the court cases. You you see a lot of like conspiracy theory documentaries and that paint it totally the other way around with the court cases. And then when you actually kind of dig into the information into the court cases, you realise um, that it's not that bad, and that Monsanto probably had a right to to sue and things like this. Let's talk about some of the the GMO technology that exists. I think this I had some of these misconceptions before and I'm sure a lot of people do. You know, in terms of what role do GMOs play in compare like for instance organic farming to conventional farming in terms of the pesticides they use because a lot of organic farming they claim, you know, they don't, they, they want to be pesticide free, but in fact that's not the definition of organic farming. It's pesticide organic pesticides so natural yeah, which pesticides. aren't necessarily better or worse no. than conventional no they, they can yeah. be worse that's they can be worse yeah, that's what i'm saying yeah. they can be worse but they're not necessarily better some of them are kind of the same yeah uh, and sometimes you know um like some of the pesticides that are natural are way worse than than some of the ones that are, um some of the ones they that they use, use. Like, I think it's copper sulfate they use as well, and which can actually go and put metals into the ground. And so after a certain number of years, the soil's no right. good for growing things anymore. Right. Things like this can happen. Um, and I think there's probably pesticides that have less specificity, so they, they, can, um, they can influence you know, a, a whole range of species, which is Well, that's issue. one of the benefits of bioengineering, isn't it? Because you can make something that's very specific. You, you yeah. have a good example of, of the weed. So w one of the things that I think a lot of people are scared of is the downstream effects of using Yeah, so GMOs. that's what I want to say. Just before we do that, though, um, I think, yeah, you're good to like talk about some specific technologies because when we have this discussion around GMOs, it's so centered around like GMOs, this thing that we just don't like. But GMO isn't an invention. It isn't, it isn't one thing. A a ge genetic engineering is a technology, mm. and that technology can be used to make a bioweapon and, and kill the whole entire population of the planet, or it can be used to feed the poor and make plants grow in um, arid regions and things like this. So to criticise it as one entity doesn't make any sense at all. And really, you can't have a productive discussion around genetic engineering unless you're talking about a specifically engineered product right. and yeah. its effects. And it's very nuanced debate. Like, there's lots of... There's positive products. There's things that are damaging to the environment. There's things that potentially could be good for the environment. Mm -hmm. um, and same with our... Even with our health and things like that. Yeah. And uh, you raise a really good point. There is... 
such a, a diversity that exists in GMOs. You you can't talk about GMOs. It's like food. You're saying that food is bad for you. Well, what type of food? Is it hamburgers, or is it like is it is it pizza, or is it a salad? What are you talking about? There's a great podcast called in, uh, called Talking Biotech, which I would recommend everyone um, listening to. Yeah, we've actually got them uh, shared on our resource page. resources page. I remember listening to one episode where um, they interviewed the scientist who was trying to improve how. Uh, how photosynthesis photosynthesis occurs so if plants are able to take light energy and convert water and carbon dioxide into into sugar um, and what they do is when there's too much sunlight they have like this um, sunscreen protective layer that they excrete but when there's like a cloud that stops them from uh, receiving enough sunlight they actually remove that sunscreen protective layer but the process to add and remove it actually takes a lot of time. And so these scientists in that Talking Biotech he, uh, podcast, he was interviewing the scientists that was uh, speeding up the whole process so that uh, when, when plants need to make energy, when there's, there's, uh, there's not enough uh, sunlight, they get rid of that sunscreen really quickly. And then when there's too much sunlight, they put on that sunscreen really uh, quickly. So uh, ways of optimizing how we can produce uh, bigger plants, greater yields. This is all biotechnology and people might freak out and say, hey man, that's that's GMO, that's dangerous, but truth is that's not. All they've done is they've made the, the machinery inside the plant, inside the cell of a plant that's responsible for adding and removing the, the sunscreen, quote unquote sunscreen, they've just made more of it so told the plant to make more of it so it just happens faster there's nothing unnatural in that plant mm. but there's a tendency when you don't understand these technologies to freak out and say oh my god they're going to give us cancer we're going to get cancer babies yeah. and so on and, and so a, forth. a lot of these technologies as well um genetic engineering isn't always adding a gene from something else to something else sometimes they'll turn off genes mm -hmm. in in something so I can't remember the genes off the top of my head. That sucks. But um, there's a genetically engineered potato, which I think is in development. I don't know if it's come out yet or not, where <clears throat> potatoes, when they're cooked, right, as chips in like high temperature, high fat, produce um, a chemical which causes cancer, right? It's a cancerous mm -hmm. chemical. So the genetic, genetically engineering an enzyme in that um, path of producing that chemical and silencing it so it doesn't happen anymore. So you're, so, turning, so you're turning off the machine that would otherwise that be makes this cancerous compound. So basically, these are healthier potatoes for us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they haven't added something from another animal to do that. Right. They've silenced a gene. Yeah. yeah. So basically, you're just missing out on one of the proteins that's in this potato. So how does a lack of a protein? cause a sickness you know people yeah. who don't eat potatoes at all don't get sick from not having the protein That's so how point. is taking it out of the potato going to make us sick by eating a gmo like that but you still you still get this fear-mongering around it um that podcast talking biotech um so that's run by uh, Kevin Falter. He's a, a plant geneticist from uh, University of Florida. I believe he's works in strawberries. I don't think he actually does genetic engineering in his work specifically, but he's just involved in it. And um, it's a really great podcast. They focus a lot on, uh, on as we've just heard, like as Hamid just said, um, explaining scientific concepts around uh, particular crops and particular um, genetically modified foods. But they also focus a lot on science communication, which is really interesting, and how to have discussions with people. 
because I think these people that are anti-GMO they actually have they have a good point you know like food's important right it's really it's really serious that we get food right because it affects everybody and if we screw it up it's disastrous um, and we've learned there's been things that are bad before um, but uh, but it's really important that we also have the conversation keeping the science in mind and understanding what scientists are actually saying and what the risks actually are as opposed to these kind of manufactured risks that just propagate this unnecessary kind of fear throughout the community. Uh, so it's hard and it's, and it's good trying to learn how to do that, um, that kind of effective communication as mm. a scientist, yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. I thought um, maybe we can talk a little bit about science and politics too. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Miao, Miao was uh, very critical of scientists out there who weren't getting involved in politics and, and trying to create, um, trying to create the change that you know what every scientist want out there. So the policies that reflect science rather than work against it, you know, this climate change stuff that Trump and the EPA is doing in America. So that's what they don't want, and this is why his argument, his argument is that this is why scientists need to get involved in politics so that these politicians especially these career politicians that they hear a, a a a rational voice explaining the science simply so that they can make better informed policies yeah not even just hear it but the scientists themselves can be the ones voting on these policies that mm. i understand i think that's a fair point and it's interesting because because uh, he was pretty critical of neil degrasse tyson uh staying out of politics um because i think uh tyson's like pretty pretty uh, famous for his just staying apolitical basically on every mm. issue yeah just talking about the facts um and I, I think he was pretty critical of that because neil degrasse tyson also talks about the need to get scientists into politics that's one of the things he talks about a lot is how it's uh you look around um the parliament and it's you know lawyer 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 businessman lawyer businessman mm. and it just goes on like this yeah where are the scientists where are the artists where are all these people um but then i kind of see meow's point that someone like neil degrasse tyson does have the ability he has the money he has the popularity yeah he's in a position where he could be political he could be the scientist in there making the changes that he's telling other people to do so I kind of get that point, but I also kind of get the point that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's position that particularly in America, I think, where it is very polarized, uh, particularly at the moment as well, that if you pick one side or the other, and you would kind of have to if you want to go far, if you pick, picking one side or the other, um, is that going to compromise your ability to be an effective science communicator? Are people going to just turn off straight away because you've announced yourself as a Democrat? Mm. Yeah, you're going to lose the Republican voters just instantly. And I guess that's a risk that you've got to take. But, yeah, I don't know where I come down on it. I, I definitely see his point as well. It's a bit hypocritical to be telling people, get into politics if you're a scientist, get into politics. And here you are as a guy who could do it, yeah. but just doesn't. But maybe he, that's the thing. I, I could tell people to go become doctors. I could potentially do it, but I, I would hate to become a doctor. It could be that sort yeah. of thing with, with Neil but deGrasse think, Tyson. Well, maybe. If, if that's the case, if it is just personal preference, then I don't think he's very honest about it because, because that's not what he says. He doesn't say, I just don't really want to get into what politics. Or I just like. I think uh, Tyson's position is that he's worried about him being an effective communicator. 
which I which I agree with him. Um, I, I agree it could damage his ability yeah. to communicate science, but then how much impact could you have if he actually got into politics? Well, you know what's his name? Uh, Miao um, also talked about you know raising the basic scientific. Sorry, did you just forget Miao's name? No, I don't. Oh. How could you forget Miao? He bro? said, "What's his name?" Yeah, I just say that. Yeah, just to fill word, you know, fill in space. When I'm thinking, I'm like, this "Oh, guy's name is like the most remember." I'm like, "What's his face? What's her face?" No, nah. um, dude, I forgot what, what the point I was going to make. Thanks for interrupting sorry, me. Sorry, I shouldn't have God interrupted damn you. Shit, just put in some thinking time. <laughs> no, what was dude? What were we talking about just a minute ago, man? Something about politics. And getting involved and oh, why Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't get involved because it in, stops him being a, an effective science communicator and and you're saying maybe he just doesn't want to do it. Maybe it's a combination of both. I don't know what what why he's doing it, but I mean, for me personally, I hate politics mm. and and I think political apathy is very dangerous. In not caring about politics is dangerous because you get people in power who'll just do whatever you want and you're not doing anything to stop that. But personally, I just feel like politicians are. Oh, man, they they'll say and do anything just to get elected. It's, yeah, it's just for yeah. their self-interest. You know, there's a. It's like me. I was talking about career politicians and stuff. Yeah, man. Yeah. Like there's a great example of there's, there's a great podcast called um, Hardcore History by Dan Carlin. He talks about the Gracchi brothers. There were these two brothers that try to bring this revolutionary change to Rome. You know, they want to represent the people. They were the popularists, but then there was like, th- then there were people like, hey. Are these people there to serve the people or are these guys just you know, serving themselves by trying to align with what the people want? So I just feel like polit- politicians, you mm. can never distinguish between them two. And so that has turned me off completely. Well, there's difference between leaders and people that just do what they think people want to be in a position well, of how power. Many, yeah, how many leaders truly exist, man? I think it's just Leaders, I think, do what's right despite what the people want yeah good luck with that dude yeah, yeah well it's hard isn't it that's the system was we that have dude, set up yeah there was that dude who stopped greyhound racing what happened dude he he faced so much pressure he went back on his word yeah. I, I just don't see any hope for politics if if you're down for to doing it and that's what meow is doing he's he's running for the science party if you're down to do that man i completely support that go ahead and do it but for me personally going through that system and this is yeah, why poli- I can politics isn't for everybody but I think you're right about the apathy thing it's not good to be politically not, apathetic yeah. and that's why I, I feel like Neil deGrasse Tyson maybe he recognizes the dangers of being politically apathetic but he also recognizes that first of all it would probably hinder his ability to communicate science and b it would probably he would probably hate it day in day out dealing with liars bro I think maybe he thinks um <clears throat> and not yeah, I'm I saying guess, that I guess so we don't I'm know not saying really listen, thinks, I'm not saying that all politicians are liars <coughs> but I'm saying all politicians are liars <laughs> no I'm not just a big portion of them yeah I, I think um Tyson sees a certain for him personally sees a certain benefit to being apolitical maybe he thinks that you know, I'm just guessing but you know maybe he thinks that um being apolitical gives better credibility to the science that he communicates yeah. so by saying by making it himself explicitly apolitical mm-hmm. he's kind of saying listen you can trust what i'm saying about the yeah. science because there's no agenda because, behind it. yeah he's he's being explicit he's saying listen right. i'm definitely not going to have an agenda i don't have an agenda yeah. to be honest though i don't think that saves him because i see a lot of stuff 
anti Neil deGrasse Tyson stuff from people oh, yeah. who like deny climate change and things not, like not this anyway. So I don't think it actually saves him because he gets painted as a political leftist anyway. Sure. Um, but and people who believe in flat earth, they hate him. It's funny sometimes they they take videos of him explaining why the world is not flat and they use that as evidence against him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think you can ever keep everyone happy, man. That's that's, that's right. the important so, yeah, thing. I don't, I don't know, but I'm I'm just guessing at what he thinks now. Yeah, that's <laughs> We should probably um, let people know how they can get in touch with uh, Meow and Biofoundry. Like, if you guys want to support Biofoundry, if you like what he's about, you can contact um, them and support them through their membership registration page on their site, which is www.foundry.bio. Did you just say www, bro? It's 2017. It's Sorry. not 1995. Dub, dub, dub. Oh, God. Not even that. Foundry.bio. Oh, foundry.bio, whichever one. Foundry.bio, we'll leave it at that there. You guys guys will find it. (laughs) And also he's got a Patreon. He does have a Patreon. The link's on that page as well. And he's got a Facebook, so hit him up on Facebook. I'm not sure if he's got a Twitter. I think he told us he set up a um, YouTube account, so look that up. Um, And he's still current with the Science Buddy too, so you can find him there. Yeah, so go on Facebook. I'm sure he'll have a bunch of information. Then go on on his website, the BioFoundry website, foundry.bio. Cool. Uh, that's pretty much it. So next week, we're going to have part two of our interview where he talks about transhumanism and a bunch of other cool stuff. Yeah, it takes out his anger at baby boomers. That's it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> a gra- it's a great episode. Yeah, it, it was really fun. So I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the first episode and uh, tune in next week for the second one. Thanks for listening to Blab Coats. Rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, because it does help us spread the word. And if you like what we're doing here, then help us grow it by sharing this with a friend, a friend of a friend, or your mailman, even your mailman's mailman. We also want to hear from you, so send us questions or comments to blabcoats at gmail.com. And if you have any interesting questions or comments, then we'll talk about it on air.